Hello, hello. Wow. What a day, huh? What a night. My makeup's a little smudged right now because I was crying while watching the uh, acceptance speech for Kihei Kwan and for uh, Michelle Yeoh. Oh my god, their acceptance speech has made me bawl my eyes out. I loved it when uh, Kihei Kwan pointed at the camera and was like, you know, don't give up on your dreams. <laughs> I started crying my eyes out. <laughs> and I also cried when I was watching Brendan Fraser's acceptance speech. I mean, he really deserves it. He is such an amazing actor. I think he's so supremely talented. And I was genuinely, like, surprised that everything, everywhere, all at once won Best Picture. <laughs> that I didn't expect. And yeah, I mean, why not? You know, it's a very unique film. It's innovative. It's wacky. It's highly original. And I think all of those things deserve praise because it takes bravery and courage to be that bold, to be that crazy and freakish. You have to be immensely courageous. So congratulations to the Oscar winners. Congratulations to the Asian American community. Yeah. Fuck yeah. That's a big win for us. My neck is feeling a lot better. So that's good news. Yeah. The tightness around my neck and upper shoulders, that's, it's gone down a lot. So I'm doing a lot better today. I think I'm going to be all right. <laughs> and it's also daylight savings here in America. So all of us are a little bit out of whack. I think they're going to eventually outlaw daylight savings and it's going to stop being a thing in like two, three years or something. Hopefully very soon. But yeah, I can't wait for that shit to end because like, why, why give me one more thing to worry about by changing time? You know, why are you, why are you changing my concept of time? I mean, it's like a radical thing to do. And it's something only Americans do. Like no other fucking country does this. It's very bizarre. You know, I was thinking today about like this notion of reality and a lot of these like, I don't know, spiritual sources and spiritual books, they always say pretty much the same thing that an individual is the one that creates their own reality. Like all of us exist in our own sense of reality and what that is. And we all decide what that reality is. So reality is chosen by us. It's not something that is objective to the whole, you know, all of human humanity. That's not how it works. It's it's a thought. That's the idea that came to me. Reality is a thought. Let's say I have a thought like, oh, you know, Jennifer's mad at me. Let's say I have that thought. Jennifer's mad at me. Then that becomes my reality. Jennifer is mad at me. Yeah, that's how it ends up being. What if I say Jennifer is upset, but it has nothing to do with me and I just hope she gets feels better soon. And she will because, you know, our moods go up and down and she eventually will. If I think that way, then it's not a problem, right? So that's what I mean. Like any thought that occurs to us, it can be questioned. Like, is this thought real or not even real. The thought itself is real, yes, but it's more like, does this thought serve me? <laughs> does this thought help me feel more free? And if the answer is no, then I'm going to say, okay, like, I'll put this thought aside for now. 
and come up with a different thought. <laughs> so yeah, that's that was my little enlightened moment of the day. And I wanted to share that with you. So I'm sure a lot of you have watched part two of The Glory. And I am... I like I, I binge watched most of the episodes like this evening. So I'm recording this super late. And yeah, I'm just trying to get this out like as soon as possible. I don't like this show. <laughs> I don't like it. It's not a good show. It's a very unbalanced show. It is uh, crazy. Okay, it's out there. And it's made a lot of mistakes. Okay, so um, that's my opinion about the show. But there are some things that uh, are relevant to my recovery journey with, you know, CPTSD. And I think it's worth exploring a little bit in that discourse. Like, how does this show inform the PTSD discourse and the mental health discourse in South Korea? So let's look at it from that angle. From that angle, I think this could potentially help us. So a couple of observations that I, that I made while watching part two of The Glory is that in my last coverage of The Glory, okay, the first part, I mentioned my confusion around the the bully characters like Yeonjin or Hejung, Sara, Jejun, and Myungwoo, the way they bullied and harassed Dongun with such excessive cruelty. I'm just like, where is this coming from? Why are they doing this, right? I kept asking this. And part two of The Glory does not answer my question at all, okay? It doesn't. It doesn't fucking try to even bother with the question. But I can infer some kind of answers based on Yeojung's relationship to his villain, Young Chun. Okay, so Yeojung is the doctor, the doctor boyfriend to Dongun. And Young Chun is the prisoner who is serving, I think, a life sentence for murdering Yeojung's father, who was a doctor. So the backstory is that Young Chun is this murderer. He's also a rapist. He's a criminal. And he has a broken arm and he's at the hospital and none of the doctors want to treat him. And I mean, that to me, I call bullshit on that, first of all, because like every doctor takes an oath and they're required by that oath to save the lives of anybody. It doesn't matter how heinous and awful they are. It's like a doctor's job is to save lives, right? So, okay, Yeojung's dad steps in and he's like, I'll, you know, I'll treat him. I'll treat this patient because that's my job. And then Yeongchun takes a scalpel and slits the doctor's throat and kills Yeojung's father. Now, when Yeojung visits Yeongchun's prison, Yeongchun says that he killed his dad because, I mean, he doesn't quite say this. It's like implied in the way that he delivers it, but he's like, I was, I'm so bored. Like, prison is so boring. And he also says, like, this tension between you and I is so entertaining for me. Okay? So I can basically say, like, oh, he killed because he was bored. He just wanted a little action. I mean, he's a psychopathic killer, and killing people brings him pleasure. That's why he killed him. Okay, when Yeojung keeps pressing him and asks for like concrete reasons, why did you do this? You know, Yeongchun comes up with a reason. He's like, oh, well, you know, your dad said that, you know, you were eating, you know, too much ramyeon. And he's talking about ramyeon when he should be treating me. And I didn't like that fact that his attention went there when it should have been on me. 
And I was just like, okay, so this Young Chun guy has a preoccupation with families. You know, what can I extract from this, this clue? And it's that, okay, Young Chun was probably, you know, from a very dysfunctional family. <laughs> yeah, like why else is he a psychopathic killer, right? A lot of the times trauma victims are experiencing trauma not at the hands of strangers, but at the hands of their own loved ones, okay? Usually they're caretakers, all right? Their parents, okay? Or their general guardian, okay? So that is what messes a person up. And in this case, it fucked up Young Chun so badly that he went and murdered this poor doctor for no real reason at all. Any reasons that he gives that he makes up in the moment are... I mean, it could be like anything and it still wouldn't matter, right? Because it's awful. It's a, it's a heinous crime. And the guy is, again, a psychopathic serial killer. So you're not going to get any answers that are satisfactory, okay? There's really no reason or rhyme to his actions. The ending of Glory is very important because Dongun says that she now realizes in her lifetime there were also good adults. There were also divine moments of divine intervention and for trauma survivors this realization is major it is a very uh clear indication and sign of healing actually because for trauma victims focusing or it's not it's like not even a deliberate choice it's just how the brain works but for a trauma survivor like a memory will emerge and we just react to that memory, like the flashback of that memory. It's an emotional flashback. And we react to that memory by like trying to brush it aside or by self-medicating or by, you know, doing extreme sports or, you know, engaging in risky behavior or whatever. Whatever the person needs to do to survive in that moment, they'll do it. Okay. And part of that survival mode is to not remember the good moments, all right? Because those tender moments start to conflict with the narrative and it just like, the energy just gets dispersed. So like, it's just, it becomes hard for that person to focus on anything because they're just in constant conflict, okay? For Dongun to now start to integrate the nicer, kinder, warmer memories back into her consciousness is a huge sign of healing. Now, I really did not like the way that this show depicted Sarah. All right, Sarah is the pastor's daughter and she has a drug problem. But the way that the show treats her is, oh, she's just a druggie. Like that's how the show treats her. Treats her like a druggie. Everybody around her calls her a druggie. Nobody offers her any help, okay? She's just this spoiled brat. Her father's a money embezzler. And it's like, there's nothing behind Sarah's storyline. Here's the thing about addicts. People who are addicted to substances or food or screen or exercise or sex or toxic and abusive relationships or just drugs or just alcohol, anything, any addiction or food. Oh my God, food addiction. Any addiction, okay, is a form of self-medication. And they're self-medicating in order to escape a damaging or traumatic memory, okay? So Sarah, to me, is like a victim. Like She's somebody that needs help. 
Are the things that Sarah did to Tungun like heinous and unacceptably cruel? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But the way that Tungun enacted revenge on Sarah, like I thought that was the worst. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, this is way too inhumane. Like the way that, you know, like she was being filmed while shooting up and masturbating. Oh my God. And And then all these people show up and they start filming her and photographing her and I was like, this whole spectacle shows me that everybody is culpable in this inhumane act, okay? Like, just because somebody made some mistakes when she was a a teenager doesn't mean that that person should be, you know, put up in public display as an exhibition of humiliation and shame. What, because she's a drug addict? What, because she's masturbating? Like, suddenly those are reasons to shame somebody? No, that's not right. I really did not like that part. I was just like, this puts such a bad flavor in my mouth, and I I fucking hate this. Like, turning somebody's addiction into fodder for public sensationalist humiliation and shame is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. And this brings me to the whole media scrutiny over director An Gil-ho's scandal in his past. So allegedly when he was 17, he was living in the Philippines and his girlfriend at the time was being teased or harassed or abused, who knows, bullied, you know, by other girls at her school. So he showed up as like the protective boyfriend and I guess he like hit these other kids, (laughs) right? But again, like, why is that my business? Why are you turning that into my business is the question. Like, I'm, I'm posing this question to the media, okay? I, I think the whole notion of a public apology is, it needs to be reexamined. Because first of all, uh, An Gil-ho did not do anything wrong to the public, okay? Uh, so a public apology is, like, meaningless, all right? It's just a scarecrow situation. Like, he's just... You know, like any time a Korean celebrity offers a public apology, I'm just like, why? (laughs) You didn't do anything wrong to the public. You did something wrong to the individual who is now outing your past. Okay. And the thing is, he did this when he was 17. All right. So 17 year old An Gil-ho, okay, that was naughty. (laughs) It was naughty of you to go and hit some younger kids. Also, you're 17. They're 13. What are you doing? (laughs) You know, you shouldn't be hitting younger kids, you fucking idiot. That's not a fair fight. But he was 17. He was a kid when he made that mistake, right? And I think kids should be allowed to make mistakes. You were a teenager. You were a child. You should be allowed to make mistakes. I think that's fine. But the people who outed him and then the press who decided to out him and the people who are bad-mouthing him, they're all adults, all right? So (laughs) what's going on here? Adults should know better. Right. I mean, we as adults should know better than publicly humiliating and shaming somebody that we don't even fucking know. Publicly shaming and humiliating somebody who did not do anything to personally insult me. I'm not going to fucking do that. So I think I think that storyline, the whole Angilho scandal shit needs to be examined from a different angle, too, because. This show has a lot of gaps and holes and problems, but the way that this whole media tendency, the media uh, 
cycles, the, the default ways that the media treats individuals, the media cruelty, and then the human, the, the public's inhumanity, I think that needs to be checked for sure. I also really did not appreciate the way that this show pathologizes Tongun's mom. Okay. First of all, they don't pathologize her in like a grounded way. <laughs> you know, it, it's not in an empathetic way. Let's put it that way. I understand that Tongun's mom is, I mean, she is a villain character, but she's also very obviously and clearly mentally ill. And she is also very obviously and clearly an alcoholic. But the way that Tongun just drops her off at this you know, this, this mental institution, like it just didn't seem like a nice institution. It didn't seem like a friendly clinic. No, it was like the kind of clinic that judges her, uh, categorizes her, and then sends her into a room somewhere to be isolated or possibly abused by her caretakers or her handlers there. Yeah, most likely, yes. Okay, while it's true that hospitals, schools, and prisons were all designed similarly, it's also true that mental health facilities and caretaking techniques have evolved, right? What has not evolved, based on this show, is how to frame addicts and the mentally disabled. And the way that this show frames the mental institution is no different from how a prison appears. There's an important thing that Tongun mentions when her mom lights her studio on fire. Tongun says to her mom that she is her first perpetrator. And I think this is very important, right? Because Tongun suffered parental abandonment. We know this because Tongun was like living out of this kushiwan, right? The the one room. Um, I don't even know what the fuck to call it. It's, it's, in Korean, it's called a kushiwan, okay? So she was living out of this kushiwan, you know? It was like no windows, like no nothing. And so she is clearly a, a victim of parental abandonment, and most likely child abuse, okay? Children who suffer physical or sexual abuse, they grow up to suffer the same kinds of abuse when they're adults, okay? So in Tungun's case, that cycle of abuse happened to her when she was in her teens, but it's like, oh, it's also evident that, oh, Tungun's mom, right, was also an abuser, right? So Tongun has this shade around her, like, oh, she was, you know, discarded or abandoned or beaten, unloved, okay? So that kind of shadow is always lingering on Tongun's face. I thought Kim Kyungnan was a very important character on this show because she's the stooge that works at Siesta as one of the clerks, and she sleeps behind that mirror in the back room. Um, but she was also friends with Tongun when they were teenagers, and there's this scene when Tongun is like running as a high schooler she's all like bright and sunny and like puts her arm around Kyungnan's arm but then that image of healthy Tongun shatters as she faces the Tongun that is like scarred and bloody and that shattering image was such a perfect allegory of what trauma does to an individual and all the trauma literature that I read, I see the same thing mentioned over and over again. Trauma obliterates a person's sense of self. It fractures or fragments a person, okay? It makes a person's identity almost disappear because it explodes into these millions and billions and, you know, just an infinite amount of pieces in all different directions, okay? And then the healing process is recovering those pieces, getting them back together in place. 
I think the reason why Tongun attempts suicide later on in the show is because she spent her entire adulthood, her whole entire adulthood, from her late teens into her 30s, enacting revenge on her bullies. And now that that task is over, she feels completely purposeless, right? Because like I said, trauma obliterates a person's sense of self. She has no sense of self. She's just a shell of a human being. And so this purpose, right, that gave her drive and motivation is now gone because her revenge mission is now complete. And then Yeojung's mother, a fellow doctor, runs towards her and pleads for Tongun to please save her son's life. Now that's giving Tongun a purpose again to live, right? Tongun now has a reason to live because she can now go and save her boyfriend's life, right? Like whatever hell he is in. And then after she says that, there's a jump cut to Young to uh Yeojung reading letters written by Young Chun. And I thought that scene of uh Yeojung always like getting letters and reading the letters, I thought that was indicative of how flashbacks work for trauma survivors. Emotional flashbacks will percolate up or visit a person every once in a while or daily or moment by moment, but it happens regularly. And I thought that was the whole letter thing worked as a nice visual allegory to symbolize that. Once Tongun grounds herself in a purpose like saving her boyfriend or even from her past when she's saving the landlady from drowning in the river, that's when Tongun becomes distracted enough to forget her agony and despair. And I thought it was really sweet of the old lady, the landlady, to say that Tongun saved her life. But then Tongun later recognizes that the old lady saved hers, right? So it's like, oh, there's always something for you to do all around you. You know, where can your energies be placed? Does it have to be placed in... I don't know, like an angry comment <laughs> online? Does it have to be placed in outing or exposing your perpetrators from the past? I don't know. It's really the choice is yours. But for me, I just don't think that outing people and declaring that those past traumas are, how do I say, just little individualized boxes that are not connected to other parts of my life like I think to say that to think that is a trap I think that would actually inflict more damage on me so yeah just something to consider you guys for anybody struggling with PTSD and as a survivor myself I will say that healing is absolutely an option it is absolutely an option as long as you yourself decide that that is what you want to do or that that is what you're re ready to do. Not everybody is ready to face that because facing it or deciding to, you know, get process healing is like a big scary thing for most people because you do go through these dark waves. Absolutely. But no two treatment styles are alike. It's very individual depending on the person. And so go and find that treatment style. It's really up to you. It's not up to your doctor only. It's not up to uh, your counselor only or your teachers or your, your family or your support system. No, it's your decision, right? Even the way that like 
we conduct therapy okay like we're we're in therapy with a therapist it's not like the therapist is the one that's leading the whole thing. No, you're the one that's leading it. Okay. The patient is the one that leads it. The patient has the right to ask the therapist, like, these are my goals and how can I reach these goals? Like, what is our treatment um, going to look like? What is our treatment plan? Like, these are questions that you absolutely have the right to ask. Okay. That's actually you being proactive and taking charge of your treatment. So I recommend that. And if you're doing like online video um, therapy, then keep a piece of paper or notebook next to you and take notes. You know, if there's something that you want to talk about in therapy that day, write it down and then go into therapy. That's you setting an intention. That's what I do. If there's uh, something that comes up during therapy that you're like, oh, this is really helpful. This is illuminating. Then listen to it and write it down as a therapist is talking. You could just make little bullet points, like little notes, like (laughs) as you do in lecture, you know. And then after therapy, I will also write down notes like, oh, this is what we talked about. This is what came up. This is how I felt. This is what I would like to work on or pick up from next week, you know. So these little proactive choices, they're so small, but they're major, you see? So I really recommend that you guys try and figure out what your treatment style or direction is going to be like if you are a trauma survivor. For me, reconnecting myself to my mind, body, and spirit, that was very important because trauma will disconnect you from your mind, body, spirit, and heart. All of those things become disconnected. So reconnecting myself back into that through yoga, mindfulness meditation, somatic therapy. Somatic therapy has been very, very beneficial for me. All of those things count. All of those things work. They worked for me, but they might not always work for you. You have to find the one that you feel the most comfortable with, the one that helps you feel like, oh yeah, this works. This is excellent. This keeps me grounded. This keeps me going. This gives me hope. You will sense that if you go and look for those things. All right. So keep an open mind and keep hope alive. And yeah, also create, make art. Art always helps. All right. And also integrate new memories positive memories, good memories, nice memories as you work towards a brighter future. 